so great to be with you here at Destiny Church, where we believe that God has a divine calling, a divine destiny, a divine plan and purpose for your life. How many of you believe that, too? Yeah. Amen. Do you believe that? Yeah. Man, if I didn't believe that, I, I wouldn't even get out of bed in the morning. Why even, why even live life if you're not living for the plan and the purpose and the call of God? Amen. Yeah. I mean, what? Yeah, okay, that's not my sermon, so I'm not going to go off on that. So Luke chapter 10, we're back in our sermon series on the parables of Jesus, these stories that Jesus would tell as he traveled from town to town, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God. A parable is a simple story with a powerful, profound truth. A simple story with a powerful truth. And today we're going to be looking at one of my favorite parables, and I think will probably be one of uh, your favorites as well. It's one of the most loved, the most endearing, and, and really heartwarming and touching parable. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. How many of you have heard this parable before? How many of you, you think you kind of know what it's about? Don't raise your hand, because that's a trick question, all right? Listen, the, the, the parables of Jesus, as we've been studying them and going through them together, what we find is that there's a lot more going on than what just the surface might show us and tell us. And I remember even as a child that, that this parable captured my imagination. This parable of this good Samaritan who would go out of his way, who would sacrifice, who would, who would let himself be um, inconvenienced for the good and, and the love of a total stranger. I remember as a child thinking, wow, what an incredible human being. What an incredible thing to do. But as we get into it today, I, I want you to see that there's a lot more going on uh, in this parable and in the context of this parable than we would normally think. And so hopefully the Lord's going to help us to, to really get the true meaning behind this parable and, and to respond to it uh, the way that Jesus would have us respond. So let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your word, Lord, that you, it says, and it is true, that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, this world uh, can be so confusing. This world can be uh, so dark at times. But Lord, when we open your book, when we open your word, it shows us and it teaches us and it leads us in the pathway of righteousness. It leads us to you so that we could have our relationship with God restored, that we could have eternal life, life everlasting with you forever in your kingdom, sins forgiven, restoration, redemption, Adoption, Lord, everything that you're accomplishing for us, we're so thankful for it today. Lord, as we study your word, Holy Spirit, open up our hearts and our minds and our ears and our eyes. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear what it is that you are speaking to us today. Lord, we believe that when we read your word, that these are not man's words, that this is the word of God. And so as we read it and teach it and study it, Lord, we're not hearing from men, but we're hearing from you. So give us ears to hear in our spirit today what it is that you are saying to us. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Everybody said amen. Luke chapter 10 verse 25. I'm going to read the whole story then we'll come back through and unpack it together. 
Luke chapter 10, verse 25 says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Verse 29 says, but he, that's the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever, you, whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers, Jesus said. The one who showed him mercy, responded the lawyer. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. You know, one of the most interesting things about this parable and what helps us to see and to understand what's going on and its deeper meaning is the context that this parable is spoken into. You know, you can pull verses out of the Bible and pull them out of context and you can actually make them say something they totally don't say in their context. How many of you have ever had your words taken out of context? How many of you like that? No, of course not. It's, you can twist the meaning. So as we look here at the context of what is happening, it, it shows us that there is a deeper meaning here. The context here is that there is a huge amount of hostility and animosity and anger between the Jewish leadership and given and directed towards the Lord Jesus Christ. The Jewish leaders, the religious leaders of the day do not like Jesus. They do not like him because he challenges their hypocrisy. He challenges their positions of prominence because people hold the, these religious folks in high esteem and Jesus comes and says, you guys are just whitewashed tombs. That you guys are just, a, you, you're, you're like a coffin. On the outside, you're all nice and pretty, but on the inside, what's truly going on in your heart is like a rotting corpse. That's what Jesus calls out and tells these people publicly. 
How many of you would enjoy the Lord Jesus Christ doing that to you? No, of course not. So they don't like him very much, and ultimately we know that this hostility, it culminates in the cross, him being put on trial and falsely accused and, and beaten and mocked and, and, and killed and crucified, that they tried to get rid of him and to do everything they could to silence him. And it culminates, this hostility culminates in the cross, but on the way to the cross, there was many different times where there were these little skirmishes between Jesus and the religious leaders of the day. And so here we see that Jesus is teaching and he's preaching. He's sharing the good news and, and telling people about God. And in the middle of his message, it says a lawyer stands up to put him to the test. Now that's crazy to me. I mean, that's just nuts to me. But this happened to Jesus all the time. We see this happen to Jesus all the time where he's teaching and he's preaching and someone just stands up in the crowd and begins to call him out and to challenge him. Now that would be nuts if that like started happening here at Destiny, right? I think one of the lawyer, uh, one of the, not the lawyers, one of the ushers would come in and, you know, tap you on the shoulder and take you out to the parking lot if, if that started happening here. But here, here this happens. Someone stands up and they begin to challenge Jesus. And this is not just a civil lawyer. This isn't someone who just practiced in, in settling petty disputes like Judge Judy. No, this is a master in mosaic law. This is someone who studied. Their job was to study and to interpret the scriptures. That's what kind of lawyer this was, who, could, who was an expert in the law of Moses that was the Old Testament scriptures, the, the scriptures that they had in Jesus' day. And so he's coming to Jesus with a question, and we know that his motives are not pure. He interrupts Jesus, what Jesus is teaching and trying to do, and he's, it says clearly in verse 25 that he's doing this to put Jesus to the test. He wants to, to have a sparring match, a theological debate with Jesus. He wants to put his own expertise on display in an effort to try and discredit the Lord Jesus Christ. Not a good thing to do, right? Jesus, who, whom John chapter 1, verse 1 says that he is the word made flesh. Right? If you're going to like have a Bible debate with Jesus, let me tell you, you're going to lose every single time. Nevertheless, this guy thinks that he can outwit Jesus in the word of God. Now, I have to admit that I find lawyers to be kind of intimidating. I've had to deal with some lawyers in my lifetime, and I always come into their office, and everything is wood and mahogany and Corinthian leather and... I'm wearing tennis shoes, and I talk to them for 15 minutes, and they say, thank you, that'll be $5,000. And I say, okay, you're the lawyer. I, I mean, what am I going to do, sue you? I mean, like, you win. So lawyers can be kind of intimidating. Nevertheless, Jesus, he engages with this lawyer. And we know that he's not genuinely asking. This isn't a, a genuine question that this is actually a hard-hearted 
person, a a legalist in his heart. He's self-righteous. Yet what I want you to notice in this is that Jesus is incredibly patient, incredibly tender-hearted, incredibly um, engaging with this person who's only trying to trap him. And then in verse 25, he asks Jesus a question. He says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, even though his motives are wrong, he still asks a very good question. That is a very good question. In fact, I would argue that is the most important question that you could ever ask of yourself. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? What do I have to do to be saved? What do I have to do to have my sins forgiven? What do I have to do to be made right with God? And we see that this is actually a question that's on the minds of many people in Jesus' day. I don't know if this question is so much on the minds of people in our day. I think people in our day tend to believe that they're pretty good people and they don't have to do anything. That they just keep living life the way they're going and in the end it'll all work out just fine for them. I think that's sort of the prevailing thought of our day. Which is not what the Bible says, which is, you know, a cause for concern. Nevertheless, we see in Jesus' day, there was a rich young ruler who approached Jesus with this question, Matthew chapter 19, that uh, Nicodemus in John chapter 3 approaches Jesus with this question, that many times people stop to ask Jesus this question, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? This is something that people were pondering. Now, this is something that Jesus spoke on regularly, and this is what Jesus came to bring us, life eternal. Amen? Amen. Jesus came to bring us eternal life. I'm going to share with you just a few passages where Jesus talks about that he is the one who gives eternal life. John 3, 16, for God loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting or eternal life. John chapter 11, 25, 26, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. The one who lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? John chapter 4, whoever drinks of the water I will give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And finally, John chapter 5, Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death unto life. So this is something that Jesus talked about regularly. And he said, look, if you want eternal life, all you have to do is believe in me. Believe in me, believe in my life, believe in my death, believe in my resurrection, believe in the Father who sent me. If you will believe upon me, you will have eternal life. Jesus taught this regularly. But Jesus knows the person and the character in the heart of the person who's asking him. And so Jesus responds by asking this 
man another question. So the man says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, what is written in the law? I love this about Jesus. He points him to scripture. He points him to the word of God. He says, do you want the answer? Go to God's word. Go to the Bible. What does the Bible say? Jesus doesn't say, well, what does your tradition say? Jesus doesn't say, well, what does the culture say? Jesus doesn't say, well, what do you say? What does your teacher say? Well, what does your pastor say? Well, what does that guy with the funny hair on TBN say? No, he says, what does the Bible say? Amen. And I would submit to you that we would be well served by taking a page out of Jesus' book in our lives. We would be well served to start with, what does the Bible say about this? When faced with the dilemmas of life, with the questions of life, with which way should I go, with the big questions that we don't always have the answers to, if only we would start with the Bible. And what does the Bible say? Instead of, what does Google say? Or what does Wikipedia say? Or what does YouTube say? What does the Bible say? You know, we are so quick to turn to other sources of knowledge and truth. And I understand there there are things, there are things in life that the Bible doesn't have answers for, like how to change a a flat tire or how to jumpstart your battery or, you know, how to fix a drawer that's come off its hinge in your kitchen or you know I mean there's lots of things in the Bible that that it doesn't have answers for but for the most important things those answers are there those answers are there how should I live my life the answers are in the Bible what type of person should I look for in a spouse the answers are in the Bible how should I conduct myself in the workplace the answers are in the Bible. How should I relate to my spouse? The answers are in the Bible. How should I relate to people who mistreat me, who do me harm, who curse me? The answers are in the Bible. How should I raise my children? The answers are in the Bible. What should I do when the Spurs lose a game seven? The answers are in the Bible. The the answers for the most important questions are to be found in God's Word. But we look to so many different sources. Well, what do you say? And what do you say? And what does this person say? Listen, we would be well served to follow Jesus' example of when we are faced with life's most important questions to first start with, well, what does the Bible say? What does God have to say about this? And listen, when you find the answer in here, guess what? You don't have to go look for any other answers. Because when God speaks, that settles it. It's done. It, it's like, well, these other people say this. Yeah, but who cares? This is what God says. So, you know, unless their name is God. 
unless they created the universe, unless they created me in my mother's womb, unless they uphold everything by their own word, I'm going to go with what this says. Anyway, that's my little rabbit trail sidetrack about that. Amen. Praise the Lord. And you know what? I'm going to go back to my little rabbit trail. So in John chapter 17, Jesus prays the, the most incredible prayer. It's called the high priestly prayer. And in that prayer, as he's heading to the cross, the last night of his life, he prays for his disciples, and he also prays for those who will believe on account of their testimony. That's me and you, FYI. Jesus prays for those who will believe the, the message of the gospel on account of the apostles. And if you believe in Jesus today, he's praying for you. That means that Jesus is heading to the cross and he has you on his mind. He's praying for you. And one of the things that he prays is that the Father would sanctify his people in God's truth, which is the word of God. He says, sanctify your people in the truth. Your word is truth. In a world of lies, deceit, people trying to mislead other people, in a world of fake news and false news and Mueller reports and Russian meddling and in a world of, of just utter and total chaos, when you come to this book, you've got the truth. You have the truth. God's word is the truth. You never have to question one word you read in this book. In a world of having to question everything that everyone says from every medium, and what is their bias, and what is their agenda, and what are they trying to accomplish, what political party and persuasion are they from, when I open this book, I can turn all of that off because this word is the truth. It is the truth. It, it doesn't just contain the truth. It is the truth itself. And I find that incredibly comforting. I find it incredibly comforting. One of my favorite things to do is to close CNN and to close Fox News and to shut down all the apps and to open the Bible app and to go, oh, this is the truth. This is the truth. I don't know about any of all that, but I know about this. God's word is the truth. So listen, go to God's word for the answers. Go to God's word for the answers. It will never lead you astray. Okay, now I'm done with my rabbit trail. So the, the answer that the, the lawyer gives is a very good one, and we should expect that because he's... A lawyer and this is his job to study the scriptures and so he comes and he tells Jesus well here's what the law says that you must love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul with all your strength and with all your mind and if that wasn't enough you have to love your neighbor as yourself and Jesus says to him yep you got it man that's what the law says so go and do that and you'll live 
He summarizes the whole Old Testament, and we see that Jesus also summarizes the Old Testament this way as well, to love God and to love others. That, that all of God's laws, all of his rules, all of his commandments fall into these two categories, love for God and love for others. If we could only love God with everything we have and to love others as ourselves, we would not need any other commandments. The only commandment, really all of the commandments are summarized in one word, love. Just love. If you would love your neighbor as yourself, you wouldn't need to have the commandment that says don't lie, don't cheat, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal. Because if I'm loving my neighbor as myself, I won't lie, I won't cheat, I won't commit adultery, I won't murder, I won't kill, I won't steal. Right? So all of the law, all of the commandments, all of the rules can all be summarized in the one word, love. And so this man answers rightly. And Jesus says, very good. Go do this and you will live. Do that and you'll have eternal life. Now, how many of you would say that's kind of a curious answer? That, that seems a little bit curious. That Jesus says to this man, yeah, keep the law and you'll have eternal life. Is that what we believe? On the surface, it seems like Jesus is undermining the very heart of the gospel message. The very heart of the gospel message. It seems like Jesus is undermining this by saying keep the law and you'll have eternal life. Galatians 3.16 tells us this. That we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus taught as well. Believe in me and you'll have eternal life. It goes on to say that we who have believed in Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Romans 3.30 says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So what is going on here? What is going on here? This man comes to Jesus. He's trying to trap him. He's trying to trick him. He's trying to put him into some sort of uh, a double standard and embarrass Jesus in front of the crowds. And he says, What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? The man answers, I need to love God fully and completely, and I need to love my neighbor as myself. And Jesus says, you answered right. Go do that, and you'll have eternal life. What? What? But I didn't, I thought that through keeping the law, and I thought that we weren't justified by works of the law. Wait a second, what is going on? Here's what I want you to know. Jesus is right. That, that's like the easiest amen ever. <laughs> Jesus is telling the truth. Amen. Jesus is right. Okay, I shouldn't have to convince you of that. Listen, the purpose of the law, the, 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 the purpose of God's commands, the purpose of the law is to show us our sinfulness. And Jesus here is using the law for its intended purpose. The law, as Paul says here in Romans 3, is designed to show us our sin, to bring us knowledge of sin, to show us our need for a Savior. You see, if this man were honest, 
if this man were humble, if this man were truly seeking the, the knowledge that he claims to be seeking, if he was truly seeking eternal life, he would have said to Jesus, but I don't love God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength, and with all my might. He would say, I've failed in that completely. Even though I've tried so many times, I break God's commandments. I, I break God's laws. I don't love him the way that I should. If this man were genuine and honest, he would say, but I don't love my neighbor as myself. I'm a very selfish person, and I look after myself before I look after everybody else. But this man is not genuine. This man is not an honest person. But if he would have done that, if he would have said, I'm, what do I do now, Jesus? I've broken God's law. I haven't loved God. I haven't loved my neighbor. But what do I do now? What hope is there for me now? Jesus would have been so quick to come with the gospel and say, listen, believe upon me and you'll have eternal life. Believe upon me and have eternal life. Jesus is using the law for its intended purpose to show us our sinfulness. Um, James says that the, God's word is like a mirror. When we come to read God's word and we come to read God's law, we, we, we see ourselves like in a mirror for who we really are. And it's like when we wake up in the morning. It's not a pretty picture, right? It, it, when we see ourselves in our sinfulness, in our brokenness, breaking God's law, breaking God's commands, not loving him, not loving others the way that he commands us to do, it's, it's not a pretty picture. This is the, the purpose of the law, and this is why Jesus is, is he's holding it up for him. He's saying, this is the law. How do you measure up? And this guy, he digs in his heels. He is not humbled. He's not sincere in his questions. He's not searching for the truth. And in verse 29, it tells us that this man was seeking to justify himself. Verse 29, it says, he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? Okay, I gotta love my neighbor as myself, but who's my neighbor? You see, the prevailing teaching of Jesus' day was that you had to love those who love you, but you could hate your enemies. Love, love those who bless you, but hate your enemies. That's what the rabbis were teaching in Jesus' day. Jesus comes and says, you've heard it said, love those who love you, but hate your enemies. He's, Jesus comes and says, I, I'm telling you, you gotta love your enemies. It's, it's not even, you, can't, you can't go around hating people who hate you. And that's the, 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 the idea and the thought that this man had grown up in. And so he thinks that he can get off from having to love people who don't like him. And so he's like, well, who's my neighbor, Jesus? Like, seriously, how many people do I have to love? Okay, I got my neighbor on my left side. I got my neighbor on my right side. Do I have to love that crazy one across the street? Do I have to love the one whose dog always goes number two in my yard? Do I gotta love that neighbor, God? Do I gotta love the neighbor across 
the street whose kids come and, and toilet paper my house? Do I gotta love that neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And he thinks that he can get into some kind of technological or, or technical theological debate about the word neighbor. He's looking for some kind of legal loophole that will let him off the hook from actually having to love and care for other people. It kind of reminds me of when one of our presidents, when being questioned about his recreational time in the Oval Office, answered the question, it depends on what the definition of the word is is. How many of you remember that? It it depends on what you mean by the word is, right? He was trying to parse out some sort of meaning in the word is, and that's what this guy's trying to do with the word neighbor. He thinks if he can only quantify neighbor as this really small select group of people that he can justify himself. Listen, you can't justify yourself. You can never live up to God's law and standard. And notice he totally skips over the first part of loving God as if he has that totally mastered, right? Love God completely, do that. And the guy's like, yeah, but who's my neighbor? Because I got that loving God part totally down. Totally down. Like what pride and arrogance this guy has. Yet Jesus continues to extend to him love and grace. He says, you want to know what it looks like to be a neighbor? I'll show you. And he gives them this parable, this incredible story of this man who is traveling along a dangerous stretch of road, and he he comes upon some robbers who are, these are some particularly nasty robbers. They don't just take his wallet, right? They, They take everything this guy has. They leave him naked. Like, you gotta be a really nasty robber to steal someone's underwear. Like, what in the world? And to, because that wasn't enough, it says they beat him until he was half dead. So here lies this man who was totally beaten, totally humiliated, half dead, laying on the side of the road, naked, if this man does not get someone to intervene in his life, he will die. He didn't have a cell phone. He couldn't, you know, text his emergency contact. There was no AAA, right? This This is it. This guy is dying. If someone doesn't stop and intervene, he will lose his life. And so Jesus tells the story. And then here comes, oh, oh, good news. There's a, a priest coming. A priest is coming. Certainly the priest will help this, this man. Certainly a, a priest who's devoted his, his whole life to the service of God and to offering up sacrifices before the Lord. And his whole life is worshiping God. Certainly this priest is going to be a neighbor to this man. The Bible says that the priest sees him and thinks, I'm going to go around this guy. I'm not going to help this guy. I'm actually going to cross over. It says 
he goes and they cross over on the other side of the street. That's dirty. That's rotten. That's really uh, like, like the total disregard for humanity, for human life. So now here comes a Levite, which was part of the, the, the priestly uh, uh, tribe. They knew God's word. They knew that they should love God and to love their neighbors as themselves. Certainly the Levite will help this man. The Levite does the same thing. He sees the man in need and chooses to cross to the other side of the street and to leave him there to die. And finally, the third person shows up. It's a Samaritan. Now, Jews and Samaritans did not get along together. They hated each other. Samaritans were half-breeds. They, they started off as Jewish people, but they intermarried with pagan people, idolatrous people. They, they had stopped worshiping God and had started worshiping idols, and it was all this weird, wacky stuff. And Jews and Samaritans did not get along. They hated each other. They had a different culture. They had a different race. It was, a, it was a intense animosity and despising of one another based on culture and race. And so now here comes a Samaritan. What's the Samaritan going to do? Kill him? Desecrate his body? Like if the, if the priest and the Levite haven't helped this guy, how bad is the Samaritan going to mistreat him? But here comes the Samaritan, and he gets down off his animal, and he takes and he, 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 he washes the guy's wounds. He, he anoints them with oil. Everything he applies to this man is a cost to himself because this man had nothing. So everything he wipes this man's wounds with are his own possession. Everything he pours on, on them, to the, the oil and the wine to soothe his pain, it is a personal expense to himself. He takes his own time. He puts, he puts the man on his own animal, and he walks alongside it as he takes this beaten, broken man to an inn. It says that he spent the night there caring for him making sure that he was okay, making sure that he was going to make it. And in the morning when it looked like he was going to be okay, he left, but he left enough for that man to stay in that inn for two months to recover. And Jesus finishes the parable and he turns to the lawyer and he says, which one do you think was a neighbor to the man in need? And the lawyer's just like, well, you know, I guess... Um, the lawyer doesn't even say the word Samaritan because he despises Samaritans. The lawyer says, the one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus says, you go and do likewise. This should have crushed this man's pride. That's what it means to be a neighbor? That's what it means to, to love people the way... I love myself. How could I ever expect to be able to do this? How could I ever expect to be able to love everyone I come in contact with this way? He, it should have crushed his heart. 
his hard heart that had hardened himself against God. That's what this story is designed to do. It's to hold up God's standard of perfection. God's standard of loving him perfectly and loving others perfectly. And to say, how do you measure up to that? Man, if I look at that, I am so convicted. How many times do I pass people by? How many times have I fallen short of loving my neighbor? I don't even treat my own family this well. This guy treats a stranger like that. Jesus holds this up as the standard and says, you go and do it this way. How in the world could I ever do that? How in the world could I ever live up to that standard? If that's what it's going to take for me to inherit eternal life, I'm done. I failed. I'm not getting in. But that's the whole point of the law, is to show you that you cannot measure up to God's standard. To show you that that there is someone, though, who has come, who has laid down their life, who, who has kept God's law perfectly, who never once sinned, but has offered up his life in exchange for your life of failure, your life of breaking God's law. Jesus kept his life perfectly, kept God's law perfectly, and substituted his life for your punishment on the cross. The answers that Jesus gives to this question of, of what's written in the law is he, he's trying to, to soften this man's hard heart, this man who's self-righteous, this man who thinks that he loves God perfectly and is able to find loopholes in God's law for, for not loving others the way that he should. Jesus holds up this standard and says, are you sure about that? Are you sure you're keeping it perfect? Are you sure you don't need a substitute? Are you sure you don't need a savior? You see, the question that we need to ask ourselves when we encounter stories like this is, how do I measure up to God's law? You know, we were singing that song today uh, during worship, more of you and less of me. I was, I, I'm so convicted by this, because I, I just, I do not measure up. I'll be the first one to tell you. I'm not pouring oil and wine on people out in the streets, okay? Like, I, I pass by people all the time. We're busy. We go about our lives. We got stuff to do. But what does God's law require? God's law requires that I love everybody in front of me. Regardless of race, regardless of prejudice, regardless of, of culture, you know, in, in Jesus' day, the Samaritans were the, those people. And so many times we as Christians, we have those people that we talk about. Those people over there. Whether they're those liberals that are ruining our country. Or those conservatives who are just so blind in their devotion to their political leaders. Or those illegal immigrants or those politicians, or those religious fundamentalists. Listen, the Samaritan puts all of that aside, every prejudice, every wall of division, and he gets down and he loves and he serves. And Jesus says, this is what we're called to do. 
This is how we are to live as his people. Jesus teaches in, 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 the, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, he says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. James chapter 2 says that if you've, if you've broken any part of God's law, you're guilty for all of it. How can I be perfect? How can I do this perfectly? Listen, my friend, you can't. And this is why Jesus came. This is why Jesus came. There is one person who has displayed perfect love. It's Jesus. The Good Samaritan in this story, it's a picture of Jesus. It's a picture of Jesus who, who comes and, 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 and at his own expense heals the broken. At his own expense brings you into a house, his father's house. At his own expense heals your wounds. At the own expense covers your sin, covers your shame, covers your brokenness, covers your nakedness at his own expense. The Good Samaritan is Jesus. And through faith in him, we receive eternal life. The law, this story, it's held up for us as, a, as an example of perfection that I can't even make it out of the parking lot today before I failed in this. Oh, my need for a savior that Jesus would increase. As we were singing that song, more of you and less of me, I'm just, man, I need more of God's life in my life. And that's the beautiful thing. That's the beautiful thing is that when we come to Christ, we are born again, that he puts his life in us. He puts his spirit in us. And so we are able to, through the power of his spirit, love people, not with our love, which is faulty and frail and imperfect and temperamental, but through the power of his spirit and the eternal life that he has placed in us, we love people with his love. With, and we share in and extend to people God's very life and essence as we love and serve people. We can't do it on our own. We can't keep God's law perfectly. We've all broken it. But through his spirit, we are now able to love people as we should, not as a means to earn eternal life, but now having received eternal life, I'm able to love and to extend and to live out of the life of Christ that is alive inside of me. That's why the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 2 that I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the power of the Son of God who gave himself for me. You see, what we need to do is we need to stop living in our flesh we need to live out of the life of Christ that is in us by his spirit. 